The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 21st chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said to the people, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. The Gospel of the Lord. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Before I begin, uh, just a note that uh, this sermon was completed before the news uh, came out of the attacks in Israel this week, so uh, don't read into this as a kind of commentary on the the weekend's events. Um, They're not intended to be that. In his teaching to the Pharisees, uh, Jesus makes a startling statement that is rich in meaning. He had just told them, this parable about a landowner who uh, sets up a vineyard off in a distant land, and then he sends his servants to go and collect the produce, Uh, but of course they kill the servants one after another. And so he sends his son with great hopes that the son will uh, reap the produce, but they also kill him. The stone, or the building block, Jesus says, was rejected. And all of Jesus' listeners agreed with him, Uh, that these wretches should be put to a miserable death. And Jesus agrees that their punishment will be quite severe, and that's where this curious statement is made. He says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And it's a curious phrase, isn't it? It means, at the very least, that God can give and remove the kingdom of God as he wills and sees fit. And it means that receiving the kingdom of God is no guarantee that it will be yours forever. But before we dare to try to apply this text in our own day, let us try to consider what it would have meant in Jesus' day. It is our contention, shared, of course, by uh, the Jewish people, that uh, the only God who created all things formed a personal and unique relationship with a small number of people which would become the 12 tribes, 
We know he revealed himself uniquely in Genesis 12 to Abraham and then to Abraham's children. Of course, the 12 sons of Jacob would go on to become the 12 tribes uh, when they were in Egypt. And these became, as we say, his people, God's own people. Not because they were good or better than other people, but because God chose them. Indeed, near the end of his life, uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses writes, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples, but because God loves you. So God was not in the business of sort of scanning all the civilizations on earth and saying, which one is worthy of me? Which one is good enough, virtuous enough, uh, worthy enough, deserving of me? No, he made them worthy of himself, just as he makes us worthy of himself. That's what sanctification is, growing in holiness. It is the work of the Spirit in our life. The point is that the kingdom of God was given to this people. And what a blessing it was. The power of God resided with these 12 tribes. Of course, we see it in a lot of these stories we've heard in Exodus uh, in the last several weeks. We see the 10 plagues, for example. Of course, we read that uh, on, uh, I think it's Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday. But we always know the story of the Passover, the 10 plagues, and then the 10th one being the uh, great high festival, the Passover. Uh, We just heard about the parting of the Red Sea. We remember the water from the rock and the, uh, the quail and the manna that comes from heaven. And then we, as we sing at evening prayer, God led your people Israel by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Uh, So that way they could walk through the desert without the scorching sun being on their back. Uh, And at night they could continue to travel with light provided by God. And God would win them, of course, many armies uh, or many battles rather against these fearsome uh, enemies. And God anointed kings and he sent them prophets. God even changed the hearts of their captors, people like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. He actually uh, got them to fund Israel's return from exile so they could go back to Jerusalem and build the second temple, all on the dime of the Persians who had captured them some years before. So the Pharisees in Jesus' day, given all of that history, had very good reason to believe that they were God's chosen people, who had been blessed by God and always would be blessed by God. But in the parable, the Pharisees are the tenants of the vineyard who are killing the servants of the landowner and then kill the son. Therefore, the kingdom of God that they believe is safely theirs, Jesus is saying is about to be taken away. And in 70 AD, the Romans would indeed sack Jerusalem and destroy the second temple that they had built. And Judaism, again, as prescribed by the law, as we read in the Old Testament, without that temple, without that sacrificial system, without so much as a Levitical priesthood anymore, I would say ceases to exist according to biblical law. Jesus, the son of the landowner, He is the fulfillment of the law. And the failure to see that 
resulted in God cursing the land. That's not my judgment. I'm saying that's just an empirical observation of what happened in A.D. 70 when the temple was destroyed and the people were dispersed again. So I think the meaning of the parable is quite clear, as unpleasant as it may be. When the landowner places a vineyard in your care, don't kill his servants and don't kill his son. Or that vineyard will be placed in the hands of other tenants. In so many ways, our land has been providentially blessed. We have abundant natural resources. Indeed, it is a land of milk and honey. We were settled by devout Christians. We achieved freedom and wrote a constitution that is the envy of the world, indeed the basis for many other nations' uh, constitutions following our own. It is based on a Christian worldview, by and large, that uh, may not be explicitly Christian in the mention of Jesus Christ, but I think we could defend uh, our founding uh, as a nation on a Christian worldview. God lent us his hand in many battles of our own when a, a miracle of fog, uh, for example, helped Washington escape uh, in New York City during the Revolutionary War or missed shots saved entire regiments. But take a look around. What is the state of the vineyard today? How are we treating God's messengers? I'm so glad it's Clergy Appreciation Day. Uh, how are we treating his son? It's not like God demands perfection from each and every person. Certainly in Israel, every person was not perfect by any means. But when the rebellion had become so public and so grotesque and the idolatry so rampant, well, God did use armies as instruments of his judgment. First the Assyrians and then the Persians and then the Romans. The light that we have been shown has also been rejected whether in small or large degrees, I'll let you be the interpreter of. And I would say largely in the Christian West, this has been in the works for some centuries. Probably the greatest preacher of the 19th century, at least the late 19th century, Charles Haddon Spurgeon uh, from a Baptist church, big Baptist church at the time in London. Uh, he said this when he made commentary on this same passage. What a warning this parable is to our own country. We too are seeing the sacrifice and deity of our Lord questioned and his sacred word assailed by those who should have been its advocates. Unless there is speedy amendment, the Lord may take away the candlestick out of its place and find another race which will prove more faithful to him and his gospel than our own has been. Now, I don't know where we are exactly on God's timeline, the beginning, the middle, or the end of God's judgment. And by judgment, I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way, just his judgment, his providential judgment as he sees fit over the course of time. I certainly hope that we have seen enough and we are willing to cry uncle and ask for God's kingdom to either return if it has left or to never leave. But I just don't know. And I can't make any promises on God's behalf. You see, I have been criticized and people have left this congregation precisely because 
My view, I think, is the same as Jesus' view on these matters. I believe it is at least possible, if not probable, that God's providential hand of protection and prosperity has left us. The kingdom of God was indeed given to us, but has it left us, or is it in the process of leaving us? For those who want to come to church and only hear positive messages, or to be told that everything is going to be all right, or that it is only ever God's will to bless his people, or indeed to bless all people, well, I can't say that with certainty. And so I can't say it at all. I might be committing blasphemy if I did. And of course, there are many other churches who will say those very words without any shame or concern. They will gladly say with certainty that everything is fine, that everything is going to be okay, that God would never abandon us, that in fact we even deserve God's blessings because we are so good as individuals or so good as a collective people. Of course, a minority, or maybe in evangelicalism these days, it's a majority will go the other way, saying with certainty they know that God's judgment is imminent, and they're reading the the stars and the events of the day, certainly events like this weekend, and they are saying, we know it is now the exact time for God's wrath. I won't say that either. I'm not trying, in fact, to make any particular appeal. I'm not trying to scare anyone to make an immediate surrender to Jesus Christ as their Lord, although I want everyone to make Jesus Christ their Lord. Uh, I'm not uh, trying to coddle or pacify Christians either. You know, Jeremiah, uh, he was the one who always seemed to have bad news for Israel, invading of, you know, warning of a coming invasion. And it was the false prophets who were saying, peace, peace. And what Jeremiah is saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Sometimes someone has to say, this is how I see things. And Jeremiah was that person. God said that the kingdom of God would be removed from ungrateful tenants who reject the prophets and kill the son. But there is good news. Even though God's kingdom may indeed leave our nation, it doesn't have to leave this church or your family or your very person. Indeed, I believe wherever two or three are gathered, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, there he is with them. I believe that because he said he would be. And wherever the king is present, then the kingdom of God is present. When we receive the body and blood of Christ, no matter the chaos that surrounds us, the kingdom of God is there. Whenever God's word and truth stand athwart worldly evils, God's kingdom is there. Luther says in the small catechism that when we pray, your kingdom come, we mean that the kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come among us also. Do you desire God's kingdom in your home, in your life, in your city, in your state, in your nation? Remember this petition in the Lord's Prayer. 
that by God's grace, the kingdom of God will be ever-present among us. I can't promise to what degree it will come or what it might look like. But God can and will give his kingdom to those who seek it. May God give us his spirit that we would seek him and his kingdom above all else. Amen.